Welcome to Agile Clips, where we break down Agile into manageable pieces. In this episode, we interview Andrew Webster. Andrew discusses the key topics in the book, Making Work Visible, Exposing Time Theft to Optimize Work and Flow. He goes on to discuss practical techniques for dealing with unplanned work in Scrum and estimating business value for prioritizing initiatives and features. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for joining us. We're so happy to have you as a guest. Thank you, Steve. Uh, We would love it if you could uh, introduce yourself. By all means, I'd love to. Uh, My name is Andrew Webster. Um, I describe myself still as an enterprise agile coach, although I do a lot of work that's sort of not strictly canon agile. um, I, I've added to the sort of range of usual agile coaching knowledge techniques and approaches with things like Kinevin and um, systems thinking and all kinds of interesting stuff. And really all of it is is driven by a desire to improve people's lot at work and improve the quality of their work. Um, I, I often say when people who are sort of not in our industry ask me what it is that I do, I explain that I help people know what to do when they don't know what to do. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think that that covers almost uh, 80 or 90 percent. <laughs> Andrew, I think I I remember you reviewing one of the uh, books that uh, you really liked. And I think it was something about, about the making work visible. Can you just elaborate a little bit more about what do you mean by uh, making work visible and what does that book tell you? Absolutely. Well, the book is called exactly that, Making Work Visible. Its subtitle is Exposing Time Theft to Optimize Work and Flow by Dominica de Grandis. And um, I was particularly drawn to this because um, what it's talking about, she, she describes the five thieves of time and you know, initially you might think, well, what's what's that got to do with any of this stuff? Mm-hmm. But um, one of the the oh, very simple things that I like to point out to people early on as they're getting used to the whole idea of Agile is that, um, you know, the whole point of being in any form of business, of, of really being part of any organization, is that you're trying to achieve something. You're trying to create something of value. Mm-hmm. And the value doesn't actually show up until it's finished, right? And so the, the the quicker you can actually validate your assumptions of what is valuable, what's beneficial, what's useful, the better. You know, if it takes you a very long time to validate your assumptions and you get there and you discover that, you know, the market has moved on or whatever, that's, you know, it's terrible. It's a, a real waste. So a book that's specifically about being able to actually identify um, how you lose time, how you waste time, and some strategies for doing something about it appealed to me hugely. And sure enough, I mean, good Lord, I I read ridiculous amounts of books. I tend to say I read them so other people don't have to. But this (laughs) this has become one of my absolute favorites. And um, in short, the five thieves of time that um, Domenico proposes are these. One, too much work in progress. Yeah. Two, unknown dependencies. Three, unplanned work. Mm-hmm. Four, conflicting priorities. And five, neglected work. 
you know i think the, i think the last one is is a lot more something that i have not come across as frequently but it does make sense well exactly i mean what she points out is that neglected work um either it's it's sitting there effectively a sort of how else could you describe it stock mm-hmm. it's it's work that's just sat in progress you've invested something into it not finished it uh, or worse yet it's actually technical debt correct and technical debt is often just interpreted as you know just stuff you haven't gone back to and finished it's it's got a much more precise definition than, than that technical debt is the additional cost of adding new features and right. if you've actually left your your code base your technology in a mess because you rushed it out the door and now you want to add something else to it well let's say you think that by adding something to your product you'll make a million bucks <laughs> but when you take a look at it you're going to have to spend three and a half million just fixing up the back end so okay. that you can do the work to make that extra million oops you're probably going out of business well and then and you, your end user doesn't care about that and your end user doesn't care they just see you go out of business and i mean we've all got stories about organizations we've been involved with that have had to sort of drop everything and spend three months or six months working on the back end yeah. um and all of that time is other missed opportunities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yet you know it's one of the easiest things to slide past us um if there's pressure from above to get the work out the door um yeah it's really easy to do that and to do that at the cost of quality and quality isn't just a luxury the way we're talking about it actually making sure that you don't have to come back and touch that piece of code again unless it's to provide some improvement that is actually requested that's that's pretty fundamental to what we do mm-hmm. but i love how she calls it out it's just neglected work so um let's take a look at some of the others i mean the the first one that she calls out too much work in progress she kind of has that be like you know the ringleader of these thieves of time um and what she means by um too much work in progress is work that started but not yet been finished right and i mean there's all kinds of problems with that i mean that could be like poor definition of done it could be poor definition of done um it can easily be well what's a good example um one of the things that she calls out is that we're all human and as humans were very much organized around wanting to sort of fit in and uh, be well regarded by our peers mm-hmm. and to keep ourselves you know safe in good shape we we hate to risk maybe being humiliated or being heaven forbid fired and so it's terribly easy to just say yes to work mm-hmm. and if that work is invisible it's tucked away in your system somewhere it's really hard to you know argue for well actually i've got my plate full already if i say yes to what you're asking me for maybe we're going to have to take some work off my plate so that i can actually pretty much guarantee that i'm going to finish what you're asking me for right and that's just the problem that every time you start something if there is other work in progress you're delaying that work in progress right and this is this is a terrible habit that we see in business that um people get excited about things and they want to make a start well as we said at the top of this 
the value doesn't happen at the start. The value happens when you finish. Finish. Yep. Yep. So it really points to this big principle of rather than trying to think, how can we get all of this work done? Instead, thinking, how much can we leave out and do the highest value part of it soonest? Which is great because that then has you start to think about what on earth do we actually mean by value? Right. I think that's the that's the thing that they always say about stop starting, start finishing. Yeah, stop starting, start finishing. Exactly. You know. But also so, the art of the work not done. Yeah. It, uh, exactly. I mean, we go back to the dear old Agile Manifesto. God bless it. You know, simplicity, the art of work not done. Not done, right? Yes. I mean, if you want to look at the sort of cost benefit ratio, if you don't do some work, it costs nothing. And as we all know, divide by zero is infinity. So it's very high value work if you don't do it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's the core of the problem of of having too much work in progress. And, you know, as she works through the book, what she points out is that everything else, all of the other thieves of time, are thieves in themselves, but they also contribute to additional work in progress. Mm-hmm. So, for example, number two, unknown dependencies. There are three types of dependency. There's dependency upon work. You're waiting for another piece of work to be done before you can start your piece of work. There's dependency upon people. In other words, they have skills or authority that you need to make progress. And then there's dependency upon resources do you have the the uh correct access to the correct domain do you have the right tools to do something yeah maybe that domain is not available right away yeah exactly now um when i was reading about this i was reminded uh, a colleague of mine who still works at one of the bay area's very large financial services companies was telling me how they'd done some work and identified one of the biggest sources of delay for them was lack of meeting rooms wow (laughs) yep because what was happening was of course you you know need to make a decision about something and you go to book a meeting room and it's not available today it's not available next week it's actually not available until you know three weeks on thursday so you book the room and now you're waiting so what do you do you start something else yeah (laughs) And then you need to book a meeting for that. And just for that. Right? And you can't get a meeting room. And then what do you do? You book and so on and so on and so on. And so at this particular company, they were trying to have meeting rooms be only bookable by particular um, teams. Well, um, I've been paying a lot of attention to this for a client I'm working with at the moment. And in my researches around all of that, I found two fascinating things that almost universally, when you really pay attention to what is slowing organizations down, lack of meeting rooms and senior people's calendars are the two biggest sources of delay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just extraordinary. And, you know, we, we all know that there are resolutions to that. Um, you know, if you can actually organize your your workspace into team rooms with teams in them, some common space where serendipitous meetings can happen, some small private space for pairing or for private phone calls, and some small space for people who must have their own offices, people who are working things in legal and HR where there needs to be some privacy. That kind of makes works brilliantly. And funnily enough, if you look into it, you'll find that there's a lot of research being done that basically proves that. 
And when it looks at the, the common alternative, which is um, having open plan offices, none of the research says anything other than that it's terrible. I saw one piece of work that said that um, you could argue that it actually um, causes uh, a drop of uh, efficiency at work of between 40 and 70 percent. Huge. Yeah, and then they, they said people uh, avoid coming to to the office. Yes, yes. I mean, you put people into open plan, they all stick on headphones and work alone. Yeah. Um, it, it's just extraordinary. So I was presenting this to somebody a while back and they were like, well, there's got to be some benefits to open plan. So I was like, well, you know, that's a good point. And I Googled benefits of open plan offices. All of the top responses that I got were from modular office system. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just one of those things where what's happened is it's become, you know, the norm. Um, and when you're looking at refitting your office, like with so many things we stumble across, people only pay attention to the immediate cost. They look at cost per square foot. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that they're missing the 40 to 70 percent reduction in efficiency. Yeah. And I mean, when you look at the, the, you know, if you, gosh, it's been a while since I've looked at this, but five years ago in the Bay Area, and I know that's extreme, but in the Bay Area, a small team's run rate was calculated at a million dollars a year. That's what it costs to keep them in their seats working. Yeah. Huh. So if they're running at a 70% drop in efficiency, you're losing $700,000 because you put them in open plan. Hmm, was that worth saving $4 per square foot? When you start to look at the thief of time, you see how it opens up all of these little corridors to follow these threads to pull on, you know. <laughs> so um, unplanned work, that was number three. Um, unplanned work. Oh, gosh. I mean, this is a this is a bit trickier because for some people it is in the nature of their work that it is unplanned. So, I mean, we've learned that there are ways of dealing with that, that, you know, you can actually uh, make sure that people pay a lot of attention to the actual, uh, the actual urgency and importance of unplanned work, that people start to question its business value so that decisions can be made that if it has to, you know, displace planned work, then great. It's like uh, a class of service kind of thing. It is like a class of service. And sure enough, I mean, that's actually really what she suggests that you do is that you put in a little bit of work um, into tracking your unplanned work. Exactly. Exactly. So that you can, you know, there are strategies that we know that you can use for handling it. If you're using Scrum um, and you want to be able to plan a sprint, but you know that there's an amount of, of unplanned work that could turn up, sure you just reduce your capacity commit to less yeah make sure that you've got the top of your backlog in good shape yeah so that you can pull you can pull um i've seen teams who keep um a secondary backlog of you know tech debt um mm -hmm. minor improvement work because they're well aware that they could pull something and then at the last minute, something unplanned does show up after all. So they need to be able to drop the thing they've just started and deal okay. with the unplanned work. Yep. So there's plenty of strategies for it. Um, if if all of your work is unplanned, then you don't you, you wouldn't want to use Scrum. You'd want to use Kanban. Um, and you'd want it to be recognized that you start work on the next most important thing as soon as your capacity frees up, you know. Um, and she says a lot more about it in the book. And I'd urge you to go and read the book to find out more about that. Um, the fourth one, conflicting priorities. Gosh, this is a favorite. 
how many times have you guys ever heard um, a poor, long-suffering product owner complain that all of the stakeholders that supply them with work insist that their work is number one priority? <laughs> uh, did we hear any of no, it? Oh, I think we might have heard something about that once or twice. Absolutely. You know. And yet, of course, if you do try and do multiple number one priorities, you've once again caused too much work in progress because you're working on more than one thing at a time. You know, that leads to all of the problems to do with task switching and Lord knows what. And of course, it then defers actually getting to validate your assumptions of value about any of those supposed number one priorities. So it very much points to the need to have, uh, if you're working in a situation like that, to actually organize getting all of your stakeholders into a room to run some kind of exercise. Um, to actually establish what the relative value for or the relative cost is for everything, so you can prioritize. Right. Actually, and I think I think the one of the things I tell uh, most of my stakeholders there is like, if you make everything important and number one, then you don't care what they deliver. Yeah. Then, but, then the delivery team will deliver the easiest thing that they can do. Yes. And absolutely. it should be okay with you. Yes. Oh, you're right. I mean, it starts to open up the, those cans of worms. Like, well, if they're all number one priority and you're keeping an eye on it, the chances are that you're then going to end up with a team who are gaming at their metrics. Exactly. So it looks like they're making progress. And then we end up with the old, you know, watermelon project. It's green yeah. on the outside, but it's red on the inside and always has been. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, there's all kinds of problems. It's something... She talks about uh, some of the quite subtle things that um, aren't, you know, usually aren't actually presented in something like certified scrum master training or something like that. Things like understanding cost of delay. Um, if you've ever read Don Reinertsen's book, Principal yeah. Product Development Flow, which, good Lord, I mean, it's it's a very dense book, but oh my, you want to sleep with it under your pillow. Um, <laughs> and he he is absolutely clear that if you only took one thing away from that book, it's the cost of delay. Yeah. So if you can actually spend a little bit of time taking a look at the work that you're going to do and what would it cost to not do it? I mean, there's all kinds of factors that come into that. Um, I remember uh, an app that was being created for the Super Bowl. And so, you know, if you were two days late for that, it's useless to you. Yeah. <laughs> so in that particular case, it made a lot of sense to rush the app out. It wasn't particularly well built. Uh, there was a whole bunch of technical debt in it, but that's the kind of debt that you borrow because it gets paid back very quickly. You know. Right. 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 Um, there's other kinds of cost of delay where it can be things like opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. um, it could simply be that you're now paying people to be sat in their seats working on the wrong things slowly. You know. And a very simple way of describing it is let's say you have six one-month projects and everybody insists that theirs is important and that you make a start on it right away. Well, if you're going to do that with the, the churn that will happen from task switching, those six one-month projects are probably going to take eight or nine months, even if they really were one-month projects. Right. Well, the alternative is that you could go, look, guys, if you could only have one of these projects, pick one, um, and we'll do that one first, and then you'll get something valuable with you inside a month, then something else valuable inside two months, and then something else, and so on, and so on, and so on, as opposed to nothing valuable until they're all done in eight or nine months. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. 
you know it's it's not terribly difficult when you actually break it down but i i get it the people who are going mine's more important than yours they actually think it is you know there's the you, you have to have some sympathy for them it's often driven by those lovely little dysfunctions like oh you know cost-based accounting yeah yeah when everybody has their little fiefdom of budget and they want to defend it <laughs> then you know they want to make sure that their work gets done um and not it's it's extraordinary how few organizations have heard of alternatives such as you know throughput accounting which can help you manage all of that but also i mean exercises like something that that when i finally figured out to do this it it took the quality of what i could provide for my clients up to a whole other level when i figured out that you could use team based estimation you know where you 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 know lay your cards out along a table and if it's bigger it goes to the right if it's smaller it goes to the left if things move around you take them out you could use that for value right um i'll tell the story because it's it's so great i was at a client about three years ago when um i was approached by a product manager and program manager and they were like look we're kind of in a bit of trouble um last year we never really got a plan even in place and you know executive management ended up pretty mad at us and so for the coming year for our group uh they've pretty much made it a mandate that we have to put a plan in front of them that they can have some faith in and there are some nasty implications if we can't do that so okay well um here's what i suggest you do uh we're going to need just an hour and i want you to uh, get all of the stakeholders for your your organization's work your group's work uh and just get them into the room for that hour and print out your backlog uh, at epic level so you know big chunks of work and they're like okay well we can do that and they printed out i think it was some like 26 27 backlog items mm -hmm. and we had about 25 people in the room and so i spent a few minutes just explaining what we were going to do and then went ahead and did it the the first person picked up the first item and just placed it on the edge of this big long table we chose the meeting room carefully to have a big long table the next person picked up the next item wasn't quite sure what it was so they asked for uh, an explanation and the rule that i gave was if you have to explain something can you try and do so in one breath please <laughs> so we got on with it yeah and so you know this happened and they were like oh i understand what this is now uh it's a, it, that's clearly more important so i went to the right now the next person could either disagree and move something and in this case they didn't they took the third item and placed it relative to the others slightly less important so it went over to the left and then so on to the next person and the next and the next and the next and the next so the rule is that you can either place a new card a new work item or you can disagree with the placement of something and move it mm. if something gets moved more than twice you take it out interesting right and you keep going until everything on the table has stopped moving and that took a it was only about 20 minutes wow. then i took the ones that had been taken out and i went okay um can somebody tell me why is this one important and that was explained so we wrote that on a whiteboard why is it unimportant and somebody chipped in and went no it's all right I, I misunderstood it okay good so now we know why it's important where would we place it on the table 
we placed it. And then I did that for the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And then we went through all of the ones on the table that hadn't been taken out. And we ended up with a list of roughly 15 business values. Hmm. And so we were then able to say, look, let's make an agreement that in this coming year, no work gets done unless it contributes to one or more of these values moving ahead. If you find some work that you believe is actually important enough to do and does not contribute to any of these values, well, we might need to bring it to this group again and agree that we found a new value. Right. Right. Now, having done that, we had this list of values and then we could look at the, the, the least valuable and we went, well, you know what? If this is the least valuable thing, can we think of anything less valuable? No, we couldn't. Okay, good. Well, if we call this a one on the value scale, where does it become two? And we found a spot where things were twice as valuable. And then three times, then five, eight, 13, 20, 40, 100. We used a sort of Fibonacci similar. Kind of Fibonacci. Yeah. No, you, yeah. Yeah, we round it as it goes up so that it yeah. doesn't imply precision. This is about accuracy, not precision. Correct. You know, if it fits into that sort of bucket size, that's good enough. Yeah. yeah. So um, that took us about. By the time we finished, it was about 45, 50 minutes to get all of those things valued. And it was so great. The program manager came and whispered in my ear at the end of it. And he went, thank you. You just did in an hour what we couldn't do for all of last year. And you've no idea how much smarter everybody is in this room than they were an hour ago. They, because they didn't was, talk to each other. <laughs> they didn't talk to each other. This was literally the first time. And if you, it was great. I wish I'd been able to video it because you'd have seen people's faces going, Oh, oh, so Bill isn't an idiot. Oh, I've got it. He actually has a good reason for that being important. Hmm. So we did that for value. Then we got engineering in. We did the same thing for um, the amount of effort required to do this. Um, that took a little longer because these were epics and some of them were going to require multiple teams to be involved with them. It took about two and a half hours to do the same thing and to figure it out and to break some of these epics down and to size everything. But what we then had was a value and a size. So we could divide one by the other and find what's the best bang for the buck, right? And then we could prioritize it by that. What that revealed was that they'd missed some dependencies because mm -hmm. there was stuff that was, you know, they didn't think it was very valuable, but it actually had to be done first. Dependency is a value. Yep. And we had a preliminary backlog. Then we booked a session. Uh, it took six and a half hours to actually lay all of that out on a, a giant long ball um, as a product roadmap. Um, we started off story mapping and then turned it on its side to spread it out across the, I think it was six teams that were going to be involved um, over the coming year. And of course, there was a lot of detail in the first quarter and very little detail in the next three quarters. But once they'd done that, they had a plan. They took it to management. And management basically went, oh, yeah, OK, and signed off on it hmm. quicker than they'd ever made any decision that they'd made before because they saw what had gone into it. And they were now confident that they could start working on the highest value, smallest thing right away. Yep. And so even if all of this stuff did not get finished by the end of the year, what had been finished by the end of the year was all high value finished and delivered. And everybody had already signed into it, so they owned Absolutely. It. They were all involved with the decision-making. Exactly. It's kind of become my go-to way of getting this stuff done. Do the value first, then do the size, 
help the product owners break everything down into actual stories that are thin slices rather yeah. than components. And then you can really do a wonderful job. And as I was reading the book that we started talking about, Making Work Visible, I found that what Domenica Diamandis had done, oh, I beg your pardon, Domenica de Grandis, is basically laid out within the book a bunch of explanations and then a bunch of nice little exercises that can essentially lead people to a point of going, oh, that's why you would want to do all of this stuff. <laughs> That's yeah. why you might want to learn how Scrum works. That's why you might want to learn how Kanban works. That's why you might want to have a cadence of meetings. That's why you might actually want to take into account the planning onion and plan at a granularity appropriate for the timescale concerned. Huh, that's why you might want to do all of this stuff because it's not overhead. Correct. It's what actually deals with all of the mayhem and dysfunction that is most people's normal workplace. Yeah, yeah. and, uh, and then, then make it make it visible to them sooner than later. Yes, exactly. And I mean, she doesn't actually draw the distinction between transparency and visibility, hmm. but it's kind of in there. I mean, what what we're dealing with is is empirical process control. You know, there's two kinds of process, defined processes. So if you're, you know, running a manufacturing plant that's making boxes of cookies, do what you did last time, right? There's a, a defined process, defined process control. But most of what we're working on, by its very nature, you've never done it before. Right. If you've done it before, you'd use that. Um, and because you've never done it before, there's going to be bits where you don't know what you don't know. And so it's highly empirical. You've kind of got to figure it out. And the pillars for understanding that, the things on which it all rests, are transparency, inspection, and adaption. Now, transparency doesn't just mean visibility. You know, visibility means you can see what's going on. If you just say visibility, what I've seen happen is that people just deal with what's on the surface. Mm. Mm. And often things like sort of management philosophy and the subtle stuff that's going on in the social space, the stuff between people's ears and between people, gets missed. And what I love about this book is that it actually addresses a lot of the stuff where you can make that stuff come to the surface and go and become actually visible. So now you have got transparency. You can see through to the bottom of the lake rather than just see the stuff that's died and floated to the surface. Right. <laughs> oh, that's a terrible analogy. I just thought of that, but I'm using that again. That's great. <laughs> Oh, I know no, that analogy, but that's pretty no, cool. That oh, there you go. Cool. I just made that one up on the spot. You can use that, but you know. But if you can't see what's going on, right. then you can't inspect it to see how it's going or adapt to it. And you want to be able to do that quickly in short cycles so that you can steer your way to success. Because you know we we are by the very nature of our work making it up as we go along, right? That's true. So, so you know, that's why this has now become one of my favorite go-to books. I mean, I have a, a library of Agile books and publications that's approaching 500 titles now. Oh, my goodness. Um, but there's a top five, and I think this is going to be one uh, of them. So no, I, I definitely plan to uh, read that cover to cover now. Oh, I, I um, very highly recommend it. And it's a delightful read. I mean, she's a, a great author. You know, this is not um, a dry technical book. This is actually kind of fun. Mm. Very highly we, recommend it. We will definitely put a link in the uh, podcast notes for our audience. Do, do. 
Very good. So you know, while you have me, is is there anything else that you think would be a, a, of interest for us to, to talk about? Have you got anything that came out of what I was just saying about that that sort of popped up for you? Um, you know, we've got a bit of time. Let's use it. Be fun. Sure. Um, I think one of the uh, what I liked about your, you know, the anecdotes of that uh, making it visible, I think one of the things that you mentioned is what are these implications beyond just making it visible? So are there any things that you would like to uh, touch on as to after you make it visible? Right, right. It's very good, isn't it? Once, once you can actually see what's going on, then there's that uh, now what moment. Hmm. Well, I mean, very much one of the, the, the things that we all learn as coaches is that there's a range of appropriate intervention. What do I mean by that? I mean that at one end of the scale, sometimes all we are doing is monitoring process, right? The stuff going on and we're just keeping an eye on it. Then um, that might actually ramp up to something like some form of facilitation where um, other people's input is definitely required and were there to guide it. Then there might be training where we are actually experts at the front of the room, but often trained by leading people through within guide rails. Sometimes it's by actually, you know, delivering our expertise. There's, there's then coaching where once people have been introduced to new ideas, we can actually support them as they grow some muscle around it um, within the world of education. This is called the zone of proximal development, ZP, <laughs> um, which is that zone where people can't quite do it on their own, but with some kind of support, they can. And then there's, you know, uh, the far extreme, there's those situations where we're speaking at a meetup or at a conference, we're delivering a keynote. It's all about our expertise and the other people are just sitting there basically soaking it up, busy doing nothing. So when something comes to the surface and becomes visible, we have to select from that range as to what kind of intervention would then be appropriate. Is it something where now people have seen it, you can stand back and go, well, what are you going to do about that hmm. mm -hmm. and let them come up with something and try something um it can be helpful if you're using something like the um, kinevin sense making framework where you can actually look at what's come up and see whether it's something that's now patently obvious mm -hmm. in which case any idiot can work out what to do with it right you know if it's obvious it's obvious and you can apply some kind of best practice or is it something that's a bit more complicated where thank goodness we've got a team of trained engineers here who have a whole bunch of different strategies tactics techniques languages skills that they could apply to this problem select one that works and use it or is it something that's complex where actually you can't really tell how this is going to go so you're going to have to set up some parallel experiments exactly to see which fail, which are dangerous and you need to roll back, which might succeed and you could then exploit and start to use those. Yeah, it's a pivot, pivot and scale strategy. Yes, exactly, exactly, you know. So um, making something just plain visible is half of it. Well, it's in fact considerably less than half of it. <laughs> the whole point of Agile and the frameworks that apply Agile thinking is to surface dysfunction 
to show people what's not working <laughs> so they can do something about it. And you have to get very good indeed at showing people their dirty laundry and dealing with that. The, the whole point of making things visible, and again, um, the way how Domenica has written this book is just so charming, that it will bring stuff to the surface, bring it to people's attention, so they can actually do something about it. And she offers a whole bunch of techniques for doing something about it. That's great. Well, I, I think you you have actually energized us. You're to good. <laughs> go, get to that book. I'm I'm quite excited to to look at this for sure. There you go. And yes. like I say, I've only got roughly another 500 books that I could share with you. So uh, <laughs> could be in business for a while yet. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll be sure to link uh, to the book in the podcast notes. Yes, do. Uh, I don't get a kickback from Domenica, but, you know, I absolutely couldn't recommend this book highly enough. Excellent. Very good. So uh, also, how can our listeners get in touch with you? I would think wish? probably the easiest way is either through uh, LinkedIn, Andrew Webster. It's a little black and white picture of me. I think the email address that I use on LinkedIn and through which they can also get hold of me is Andrew at wisdom at dot work that's a difficult email address i get it andrew my first name at sign wisdom at all one word dot work andrew at wisdom at work because i mean that's actually how i now describe my work rather than just being agile it's about wisdom at work there you go great thanks Good. again andrew my absolute pleasure. It's been a delight. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk about this. I, I you know, this is really what I'm here for. So I'm Great. touched yes. and delighted that you asked me. Thank you. Great. Thank you. All right. We'll see everyone next week. Okay. Bye, folks. Bye bye.